score of the plan source make deliver return linear bubble chart had survived and I think it went into its height of popularity and, and innovation in probably 2006, seven, eight. And then as digital capabilities became front and center, there were some disconnects between the model. And then the intent was, okay, we need to not just update score, we need to essentially gut it or replace it. And we need to do it, you know, from a user point of view. And so, you know, we probably had over 70 different state global stakeholders that helped us with the frame and then probably over 500 public comments and, and inputs and all those kind of things. And we ended up now with something that everybody can see themselves in and they can see their organizations in. You're listening to Transform Talks, the podcast about global supply chain transformation. I'm Maria Villablanca, co-founder and CEO of the Future Insights Network, a fast-growing network of over 130,000 supply chain and manufacturing executives worldwide. Now on this show, I'm going to be interviewing and having conversations with some of the biggest names in supply chain and business, where we're going to be discussing topics around digitization, transformation, leadership, technology, business models, diversity, sustainability, and much, much more. Welcome back to Transform Talks. Now, if you know anything about supply chain, then you will know what a crucial role the Association for Supply Chain Management, or ASCM, plays in the global supply chain. Not only are they the leaders in organizational transformation, innovation, and leadership, but as the largest nonprofit association for supply chain, the ASCM also helps connect companies around the world to the newest thought leadership in this space. For that reason, I'm really excited about this week's episode as I have the pleasure of sitting down with the Executive Vice President of Corporate Development, Peter Bolstorff. Now, Peter helps the Association of Supply Chain Management oversee corporate transformation value propositions, which includes supply chain talent development and corporate supply chain performance. Prior to joining the ASCM, Peter helped companies such as Pragmatech Consulting Group, Imation, and 3M improve on their end-to-end supply chain and system requirements. If all that wasn't enough, Peter has also authored a book called Supply Chain Excellence, which offers a comprehensive look at the entire value chain process and provides a step-by-step guide for implementing the SCORE Digital Standard, a supply chain operations reference model which has been around since 1996 and recently got a refresh. During the episode, Peter and I discuss his time working as a math teacher, why he believes it's time for the supply chain to start moving as one, and the difference between operational and strategic resilience. Peter also goes on to provide some further context into the recent update to the SCORE digital standard. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Peter, welcome to Transform Talks. Hey, Maria, it's so good to see you again and great to be back and so excited to talk supply chain smack. So I want to I jump in and ask you a question because my researchers, you know, we're doing a little bit of research here and we've uncovered that you started your life out as a math teacher. Yeah, so I'm curious to find out what what part of that job did you take with you along your career in supply chain? Well, that's a great question. So I was a math teacher, to, to, to add a, a fine point to that one. So when you think about math, you like solving problems. I love solving problems, right? And you think somewhat logically. Um, but there's a side of my brain, because if you, if you look at the next word, I'm also a psychology major. And so this idea around, I have a weird balance of left brain, right brain. 
And I think all of us supply chain, especially now that we're having to orchestrate everything all at once, I think having two sides of the brain uh, matters. And so, uh, and so uh, yeah, I have a weird career path that would be a subject of an entirely different question. But um, ultimately, supply chain, I, I grew up through manufacturing in the supply chain. Well, you know what? Having both left brain and, and right brain probably is one of the things that could give you an advantage in supply chain. You know, the analytical and the creative side, it brings out the best best bits. Uh, then again, you know, I would make a joke about having a psychology major as well, because after all the things we've been through in the last couple of years, I imagine most uh, supply chain people are probably looking for some help uh, at the moment. Uh, so I'm going to quote now, quote from your book, Supply Chain Excellence. In the first page of your book, you share a funny anecdote about a conference that you attended. And uh, if I could summarize a little bit, you suggested that the way to improve supply chain performance was by copying sardines. Uh, you said something about fish in a school move together as one. So it's been 10 years since your book was published. And looking back, how do you reflect on that? Do you think that the point is made more applicable now than ever? So uh, great question. So it's the third edition. And, and so each book edition was based on 30 projects that I did in the corporate community. And, and each flavor was a little bit different. The third edition was really focused on how do I use SCORE to put in better processes to use more of my systems, right? But this idea around the school of fish, right? So if you think about it, I was in Monterey with my wife, Monterey Bay, one of my favorite places on earth. And um, we were in a, a, a Monterey Bay Aquarium and there's this big cylinder, cylindrical tank. And you could see the and at that time it was anchovies, right? So cousin of the sardine. And there was a video clip that, that saw a shark come into a, a school of fish. The school separated, you know, simply by looking to the person or the fish to the left and the right. Shark goes through, they come back together, and then they go on their merry way, you know, limited loss. Think about how that analogy applies to disruption these days. Think about the stress that's on the supply chain today. So to me, the anecdote there was, how do we start to move as one in supply chain, not only within your company, but also between trading partners? And we're not built for that. We're built, you know, on a capitalistic, you know, who's going to win, who's going to lose. You carry the inventory. I'm not going to do it. And so I, I think we're battling a lot of forces um, that we're going to have to relearn you know, as we start to think more like a school of sardines in supply chain. I mean, it's a good analogy. It's a good analogy. And certainly the disruption that we've had in the last couple of years is not abating, right? And so I think if we look at what supply chain is going to look like in the next years to come, we need to think about different ways of operating and uh, operate as one, like you say. Um, so what do you think has been your biggest lesson from the last couple, your biggest takeaway from the last couple of years? We did, a, we did a collaborative project with KPMG on, on putting together what we call a stability index. We just launched the report, um, and, and we can make it available to your constituents. Um, but the whole idea is, is what are measurable um, indices that would gauge levels of stress, you know, from high, medium, and then what are and then when you look at the map of disruptions they're just getting bigger broader and more impactful 
And so as stress goes up in the supply chain and, and we know disruptions are not going to slow down, you know, maybe, you know, they're going to change, but, but they are starting to stack on themselves is those companies that have really figured out this concept of supply chain excellence and, and moving as one are really differentiating themselves. And we're seeing it in their P&L. We're seeing it in how they handle sustainability. We're seeing it in how they make decisions around reshoring or nearshoring and those kind of things. So again, just like 10 years ago, the best are gonna get better because they're adapting. And those that either have their head in the sand are gonna die. Um, and then there's what we call these, these uh, lagging you know, folks that are trying to catch up. And, and they're gonna have to really think about how to do it systemically and not just, you know, in a firefighting mode, right? So, um, um, again, the proof's in the pudding as we move, you know, through this next cycle. And I, I call the next cycle probably the next 18 months, you know, because everybody's planning right now on next year. As you get into next year, it's going to be, okay, how does this project forward into 24? Uh, well, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and there's so much uncertainty at the moment. You know, the, the terminology of VUCA, we've been hearing that for a long time, but I think it, it it certainly applies now, doesn't it, more than ever. I think we probably thought we were in VUCA before, but uh, absolutely not. VUCA said, hold my beer. Uh, let, let me show you what this is going to be, what the next couple of years are going to look like. So I, I want to talk to you about SCORE because this is kind of how you and I started talking about this. Uh, and, you know, I want to talk to you about the digital standard. Now, from what I understand, it's been around since 1996, but it has undergone a, an update, finally, you know, and uh, it, it seems to be already having a huge impact. Now, I was reading about a case study before I jumped on this call with you from uh, some work that you did with Petrobras. And if you could sort of maybe for the benefit of the listeners, can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you uh, that you did there and what results were achieved? Great. So, again, in 30 seconds, again, Petrobras uh, was they had a burning platform on on two dimensions. One is how do I get more sustainable? And then secondly, is how do I do a better job with my integrated planning? And then the, you know, the third part of that one is then how do I develop my people? And so um, again, when you think about score, think about a noun, it's a, it's a definition, you know, it's like a compass. Um, they used our transformation learning approach, you know, which is a learning program um, that used score to come up with a list of strategic focus areas that could improve planning, improve their sustainability, you know, um, results and develop people at the same time. And again, when you look at the results that were published in the case study, again, all of the biggies, um, you know, reduced cost, improved inventory, people are happier with their jobs and, and all of those things. And, uh, you know, we really embrace these case studies because not many people, again, when they go through one of these things, it's a competitive advantage, right? And so we were really appreciative of, you know, Petrobras, you know, um, you know, shouting out to the world that, yeah, this does in fact work. And that is a common occurrence as we see people who take transformation seriously using SCORE. Um, they're teaching their people how to fish. They're coming up with a good list of things that make a material impact on their metrics. Okay, well, let, maybe the, the bigger question probably is why'd you change it and why now? Oh, so, boy, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I think the easy answer is uh, score the plan source, make, deliver, return, linear bubble chart 
had survived, and I think it went into its height of popularity and, and innovation in probably 2006, 7, 8, kind of in that time frame. And then what we found is companies really embraced it. And of course, all companies are in this continuous improvement mode. And so what we found was leaders were continuing to, to move down the maturity road. And we were getting into, and then as digital capabilities became you know, front and center, um, there were some disconnects between the model. And so we had a two-phase approach. One of them we worked, phase one was working with Deloitte on coming up with kind of a standalone digital capabilities. It's not a process model. It's more of a, a description on the, the ingredients for synchronized planning, the ingredients for smart ops, the ingredients for dynamic fulfillment. So we launched that in 2019. And then the intent was, okay, we need to not just update score. We need to essentially gut it or replace it. And, and so, uh, and we need to do it, you know, from a user point of view. And so, you know, we probably had over 70 different state global stakeholders that helped us with the frame and then probably over 500 public comments and, and inputs and all those kind of things. And we ended up now with something that everybody can see themselves in and they can see their organizations in. And that was really the main theme is make sure that anybody that picks up the model can see themselves or see their company somewhere, somewhere in the process. I think you've done that. I think you've done that. And I think it's it's definitely a, a roadmap for success in supply chain for companies in the, this era, right? This this era of uh, uncertainty and change. Um, now, a few weeks ago, we released a uh, an episode of Transform Talks with Len Panet. Uh, we recommend that if you haven't checked it out, you know, our listeners, please do so. Um, during this conversation, he and I spoke about supply chain resilience. Now, I know that that's a topic is something that you've covered a lot in the past. In fact, I recently heard a talk that uh, about the difference between operational resilience and strategic resilience. Could you perhaps maybe unpack that for us and explain how that links with the work that you're doing at the Association of Supply Chain Management? Sure. We did a study with the Economist Intelligence Unit uh, a few years back, just right at the beginning of the pandemic, right? It was, you know, timing was such... You know, Again, good or bad, however you look at it. And the whole idea was, you know, as companies are stressed, how, how, how do we characterize resilience, right? What does it mean to be a resilient organization? And, and again, at that time, there wasn't a lot of answers underneath that, underneath that question. So we actually went out and, you know, and worked with 300 organizations to come back and really try to define, you know, what is the, what is the muscle you know, under the under the the idea of resilience, and we found that there was really two dimensions of it. One is when you're faced with a disruption, is how do you work your way through that disruption? And there's a whole set of capabilities underneath that. That you know, how do I sense the disruption? How do I respond to that disruption? Um, and then how do I think about um, you know getting back to normal? You know, that whole that whole after the disruption happens. And that's kind of where people stop. And so the thought was, well, how do you build that into a playbook, right? And that's what kind of spurned the, the idea of strategic resilience. So as I, as I go through these disruptions and they're getting bigger and more intense and they're stacking on themselves, 
how do I take lessons learned from these things and then build them into what we call now strategic resilience? How do I build on supplier relationships? How do I strengthen my customer relationships? How do I build muscle memory in, you know, bi-directional orchestration, not just, you know, start with demand forecasts and then here's my supply. How do I think about circularity and sustainability? That's not going to go away. And again, as you think about climate impact and disruptions, it's huge, right? So weather is a huge factor in, in the, the impact of disruptions. So, so we really learned a lot about those two things. We have a little survey that, that, you know, that our members take that gives them a sense on here's where I'm doing well and here's where things I need to think about improving. But I would say fundamentally, everybody's a yellow or red on strategic resilience, you know, and, and there's a bell curve on the operational resilience. But I think that goes back to some of the things that we were talking about, right, which is um, supply chain leaders have been in crisis mode for some time, right? So they need to move away from sort of the crisis operating or wartime footing, as it were, to move to how do I do this for the long term? What do, how do I operationalize the building of my resilience to be more customer centric, to deal with, you know, resilience across all number of different areas. Like we said, we've, I don't know if you read the um, newsletter that I put out a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was about a week or two about, about the cocktail of crisis, because we are facing crisis in, in so many different areas, supply, demand, uh, you know, environmental, workage, work shortages, et cetera. Um, but I'm going to talk now about something that I know you're passionate about and I'm passionate about, which is the fact that it seems like all of this conversation around training and, uh, you know, helping leaders uh, with regards to supply chain resilience. I mean, we look at stats, right? So stats show certainly in the United States that like 90% of the supply chain professional population, at least in the U.S., falls into the director level, right? So it's no surprise then that the majority of time and effort is, is directed towards those individuals working on in the VP, director, C-suite, etc. Now, there's a whole volume of educational opportunity for teams, for people in the front line, for people working in the supply chain. Tell me more about that because you and I have talked at length about it. So if, if you think about dividing into the, the market, you know, again, and we did a pretty intensive market understanding of, I'll call it the supply chain professional, right? And, you know, using our competency studies, you know, you've got supply chain by process, you know, so plan, sourcing and procurement, logistics, et cetera. So you've got that. And then you've got supply chain by level. So non-manager, manager, director, executive. And, and as you said, director and executive kind of account for maybe 10 to 15% of the overall market. The question is, what am I doing for the non-manager and manager group who's doing the bulk of the work? And then as you start to think about how do I make sure that you know, as we pivot from analog to digital culture that we're bringing them along, you know, how do we think about developing non-managers and managers to be better orchestrators, you know, as opposed to, you know, firefighters. And, and so, you know, a large part of our, our talent development focus has been at that group. Um, you know, and so, uh, you know, again, we work with a couple hundred different organizations worldwide on how do we build you know, talent programs like that. So, um, and, but there's another group when you think about the workforce at large. So if you think, let's just imagine there's 3 million or so supply chain professionals in the U.S. You know, there's probably 80 million non-supply chain folks 
that still need to understand something around supply chain and then how do they fit? Um, and when you go back to the, you know, the, the big disruptors right now, labor shortage and capacity, right? So how, and, and I just talked to an organization the other day that says, hey, look, I know we got recession on the horizon, but I'm not letting my people go because I don't want to have to spend the time and effort trying to recruit them back, you know, as we're starting to move through recovery. And so you got companies talking about like that. So there's a huge pull at the moment for what I would call fundamental or foundational understanding of, of supply chain as well for a huge number of people. Well, you know, I was doing a um, webinar yesterday with um, a healthcare organization in the States that was doing a whole digital transformation strategy, and they linked up their HR, finance, and supply chain functions to do cross-functional collaboration because they felt that the supply chain in isolation is not going to succeed. It's got to be people that are adjacent to these job titles that are also touching the supply chain, touching the manufacturing process, touching you know the the procurement, et cetera, that need to be all aligned together, don't they? So, I, do you think you're seeing? I know I am seeing a lot more. I'd li- not enough, but I'm seeing some more cross-functional collaboration. Right? We we certainly need to see a lot more of it, don't we? Right, and and you know just. You know, that's within your company. I think the big challenge for the world, right, if we want to think big, is, you know, again, I go back to how we think about the end-to-end supply chain today. Every company is trying to balance two infinity loops. One is how do I orchestrate bidirectionally demand and supply, but then how do I plan to synchronize a regenerative supply chain? So every company in an end-to-end supply chain is thinking about that. And the interesting thing with disruptions and kind of the impact is market drivers aren't just specific to a stakeholder. They affect everybody, right? And so and so the question becomes, how do we collaborate better? How do we see these market drivers end to end and cooperate, you know, as opposed to compete? And, and, uh, and, and we're seeing a balance of power now shift over to the supply side of the house now because it's not just their capacity that's the problem, it's where they get the raw materials and you know commodity projects. So it, it, again, I think it's a challenge. I don't know the answer, right? I don't have that big of a crystal ball, but I, I do know that we're gonna have to really look hard at operating models and business models and, and how we work together from that point of view. And I'm sure you've seen it in your constituents as well. Uh, absolutely, and, and but I think you know, if you look at all the digital transformation failures, they're not been through problems with technology per se. They're mostly down to cultural issues, people-related issues across an entire enterprise of people operating in silos with antiquated business models, with bureaucratic business models. Uh, and I think we can't survive into this next iteration of whatever the new normal or next normal looks like uh, with the same business models, right? And, and at the heart of it is people. So, which is why I applaud the work that you're doing, because it's training not just the upper echelon of supply chain leaders, it's training the people that are working in supply chain and adjacent fields. Yep. And, you know, one, one other thing, just, just a, a, a caveat is um, I, w- I was talking to a group of bankers yesterday, and we were talking about supply chain finance. And immediately after that, there was a discussion on we need to know more about supply chain, physical supply chain, 
and we need to teach you more about supply chain finance and how do we, you know, how do we finance inventory that's crossing the ocean and how do we define risk and all those kind of things. And I, I again, even today, Maria, there's still, you know, even though you work on the same item that's coming from this to point A to point B, you know, we still have people that are working in functional silos. So again, how do we just start to blow past that, right? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Now I've got a final question for you, which is, uh, again, going a little bit back into the direction of talent, right? So um, we know that there has been an impact on the whole world with regards to uh, companies, for example, infrastructure, especially in areas where there's infrastructure that's not as robust as in other places, right? So the reason why I bring this up is because I am also very passionate about something and I'm fascinated by the work your foundation is doing in helping women in South Africa uh, attain the skills that they need to work in supply chain. Now, from what I heard, you're currently achieving what, a 67% placement rate? Placement rate in a place that has 50% unemployment. Wow. Wow. And so how, how are you achieving that? And, 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 and why? I mean, what, okay, I know the answer why, but tell me what led you to that? What led you to that? And, and how are you making that happen? So again, I would go back to, you know, several years ago, we were the recipient of a Bill and Melinda Gates grant. And the whole idea was around capacity building. That's the phrase that's used in uh, global health. So how do you develop people in, uh, in the health space? And, and so we spent a lot of time understanding that, that whole environment and those key stakeholders in, in Africa. And so at, at, at the tail end of that grant, we had developed um, a module called Foundations of Supply Chain. And as part of uh, an event, we, we spoke with folks from um, the State Department and the PEPFAR and DREAMS program. And, and again, the DREAMS program is really focused on how do, we, how do we reduce the risk in adolescent girls and young women, you know, contracting HIV. And so one of the things that we knew about that one was by having a full-time job and being able to get out of the environment, the risk drops substantially. And so uh, through one of our partners, um, uh, BB Opex and, and Glenda Mayton, who was also our program director for the Gates Grant, and local partners within South Africa are part of the DREAMS program, we actually piloted this with a group of 25 young women and um, and again, what I found amazing was the level of intelligence and the level of engagement from that community. And again, there were some basic skills that you had to have, but they ate up that content. And interestingly enough, they were able to think about some of the entrepreneurial things they were doing in terms of, you know, my family has operates a little restaurant on the street. And I can totally relate how the supply chain works in that context. And so, again, we had to work very, very hard. Glenda and team worked very, very hard to identify uh, corporate relationships that would actually then take the, the women. We have a, a, a great video clip where some of the students were actually interviewed as part of that. And again, we continue to expand that, that program. It's one of those things when I look back, you know, when I look back, that's going to be one of those things that says that was, that was impactful. That made a difference an economic difference for every one of those young women who now have, you know, a job gainfully employed in a male dominated, you know, um, infrastructure. So I could, I so passionate about that one. 
And I, as I, and you as well, you should be. And as I say, you know, diverse thinking is what's going to get us out of this sort of situation that we're in right now and perhaps lead us to more sustainable business models, better business models. So no, I applaud you for that. Now, that's why I wanted to bring it up. Now, unfortunately, Peter, that's all the time that we've got for this podcast. I told you, you and I could sit here and talk for a long, long time, but um, I want to thank you for being on here and hopefully I'm sure we'll see you again at another podcast or plenty of other things that we do together. Great. Thanks, Maria. And, uh, and kudos on your success. I think uh, Finn has just been one of those uh, things on the horizon. It's just been one of my, my admiring things to watch. So kudos on your success. Thank you so much. And for those of you watching, we'll catch you at the next one.